You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost for our reflection on the Byzantine lectionary. Uh, there's, there's much to cover here in the text that we have, uh, especially from the gospel account in Matthew of the rich young man, and especially within the context of the transfiguration, which we just celebrated. But to remind our participants what, what our goals are here in our reflection is to give the kind of foundation, the context, the historical, literal context of the text leaving room then for your pastor to take that and give spiritual insights. So we don't want to get bogged down too much. Our first thing is to get out our Bibles, and we're going to look at this text and do exactly that. We're going to look at the historical, literal context, what it meant to its original audience, and also some of the, some of the, uh, the phrases which may trip up our, our modern reader in trying to get into the text. So, as I always say, a text without a context is no text at all. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Let's take a look at this, verse 16 through 26. At that time, a certain young man came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good work shall I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. For if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which? And Jesus answered, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, and what is still lacking in me? And Jesus said to him, If you will be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard these words, he went away sad, for he had great possessions. But Jesus said to the disciples, Amen, I say to you, with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And further I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples hearing this were exceedingly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Father Sebastian, as we normally do, give us the place this gospel, so we're not just parachuting in, in the context of the gospel of Matthew, in the, in the context of the gospel story. So this is the second half of Matthew's gospel, as we've talked about before. Matthew's gospel, along with Mark and Luke, but it's very clear in Matthew's gospel, you can see these two parts. There is the uh, the part which is the story of the baptism to Caesarea Philippi and the revelation that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. 
the long-awaited earthly king they were waiting for. The second half of the gospel, starting with the transfiguration and ending with the resurrection account, is the the revelation that this Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah, the, the earthly king that they were waiting to return, is also the divine king. They were waiting for two things in the in the um, in this period. The restoration of the kingdom had two very important components: the human king, that earthly king, the the Messiah, the line of David, uh, was to return and restore the, the the kingdom. But he would be empowered, strengthened by the divine king. The glory cloud had not been there in the temple. Uh, since the Babylonians destroyed the place. The the Messiah and the glory cloud, everything disappears at once. And so they're waiting for the divine king and the sign of his presence, that that Shekinah glory cloud in the temple, to return to Jerusalem along with that earthly Messiah. And what we find in the transfiguration, of course, is that Jesus reveals to them that he is not only the earthly king they're waiting for, but he's also the return of the divine king to his people. That is the beginning of the second half of the story, concluding the resurrection. And so in between here, transfiguration and the resurrection, of course, is the coming passion and death of Jesus. And so we're really at this point heading toward Jerusalem. So we see it every one of these episodes from the, from the Mount of Transfiguration. We keep hearing that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. The Jews are going to kill him, but God will raise him from the dead. It's, I know it says, I don't know that it's in the Gospel of Matthew, maybe in one of the other Gospels, it says that after the transfiguration, Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. So there's this certainly from the transfiguration to the cross, there's this kind of intention. Is I think that's like a biblical way of saying it's like all right. the efforts going there, right? Right. That's in Luke's Gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea that, that uh, from the transfiguration, having been enlightened by the reality of who Jesus is and what he's about to do for us, they're strengthened to undergo the passion that's coming. Father, let's let's jump right in here into the text. There's a few items I think that may be of interest to our participants. The first one is this: uh, the, the the question that this young man has for Jesus, "Good Master, what good work shall I do to have eternal life?" And I know there's a, a debate at the time among the Jews uh as to what that life looks like what what happens when we die um help us understand a little bit of that that kind of social political context that's going so the this is a problem in the first century as you said and the the jews are divided in these different groups these different sects almost like different forms of christianity today we have you know there are there are lutherans there are roman catholics there are greek orthodox there are melkite there are all these different groups some are closer aligned than others, and some are very different. And the same goes for the Jews in the first century. There were so many different groups, different denominations of Judaism that had sometimes very different understandings of their faith. And so uh, two very uh, clear examples of this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees only held to the five books of Moses as inspired and therefore as a source of truth. And so since there's no reference to resurrection in the five books of Moses, no clear reference to it, the the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the body. Whereas the Pharisees held to a larger canon of scripture. They, They believed not only the five books of Moses, but the Psalms, the prophets, the wisdom literature, all of that that we have as Old Testament, 
that that was all inspired. And of course, there are many references in the Old Testament to the resurrection of the body. And so, in the, in the, uh, especially in the prophets. And so, the, the Pharisees believed in a real bodily resurrection at the end of time. Now, again, even there is a little bit, of, you know, vague of how all this was going to work out. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to teach them, he teaches them about the coming eternal life and resurrection. And so people are naturally coming to him with questions about this. He's always talking about this day of judgment and the day of resurrection and eternity with the Father and all of that. And so they could tell that he was honed in on the eschatology, on the end times. And so they would come and they asked him questions about it. This is one of those examples. What must I do to enter eternal life? Now, what would the Jew mean by that at the time? He's probably influenced mainly by the Pharisees. So he would understand that someday, even though he dies, he will be raised from the dead and enter into the presence of God. It'd be something, something like that. But Jesus then directs him, and he says, he says, well, if you would enter life, so stage one, step one is keep the commandments. Mm-hmm. And that is, keep the law given by Moses, at least the, the natural law from Mount Sinai. And so Jesus begins to list these off. He says, I've done those since I was a child. Come on. And then Jesus says, but if you would be perfect, then come follow me. And that this whole story then reminds us of an earlier episode in the gospel when Jesus began his earthly ministry and began preaching at at the Mount of Beatitudes there in Galilee, he said, your righteousness must exceed that of a scribe or a Pharisee. This is back in chapter five. Now a scribe or a Pharisee, they kept the law perfectly. They kept all the commandments. And then Jesus goes on to explain to them how, that, how they can exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee. That is, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he says at the end of that discussion. And mm. so we're hearing an echo now into, that same, uh, into the same situation here. Here a Jew comes to him asking him about what it means to be righteous and to, and to have a good relationship with God and to enter into eternal life. And Jesus says, well, first of all, you keep the commandments, right? The Pharisees kept the commandments. And then he says, but what more? Yes, I do that. But what else? He says, well, oh, you want to be perfect. That is, you want to be like your heavenly father. Then you have to come follow me. You have to be transfigured into me if you are going to come into relationship with your heavenly father. You know, um, I'm thinking about that text in, in Philippians. Again, we've talked about that in the past where, where Jesus becomes poor for our sake that we might become rich in him and it's such a beautiful a beautiful image um and i think you know reading this text i think maybe some of our participants uh may focus just on this aspect of money and of physical poverty and so forth there certainly is is that in the text but um there's a there's a, a background to that a foundation to that and that is that God himself has become, in a sense, poor for our sake, in the sense of giving himself to us fully. Um, and we're, we're given that model of, first of all, the life of the Holy Trinity, um, the Father who has poured out his life into the Son in the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Um, and we made in his image and likeness. And now that, that, that reality of that, that life of love becomes incarnate in front of them in Jesus, who has come. And the poor man 
the poor man, that's us. We're the ones that are poor. And he has come to give himself to us. And we are to be transformed, transfigured now in the light of this Feast of the Transfiguration, transfigured into what he has done for us. Father, we've, we've mentioned this before about the kingdom of heaven, but I think it's important to, to just go back and revisit it because we're talking about eternal life here. We talk now, amen, amen, I say to you, with difficulty a rich man will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I, and, uh, and I just want to make sure we're all on the same, on the same uh, page as far as, you know, floating in the clouds, eternal life, kingdom of heaven. What would this have meant to a first century Jew? So you've hit on one of my hobby horses. <laughs> yours. Uh, so this is important to talk about when it comes up. This is in Matthew's gospel. We'll, we will hear this. And it's in Matthew's gospel. We hear kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Whereas in Mark and Luke, you'll get kingdom of God. Why is this? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, but they're also a little different in the way they talk about Jesus in the language they use because their audiences are, are different. Uh, so uh, Matthew is writing for a very early Christian audience, and he's, the language, the environment, the whole, the scenes, it's all very Jewish, very Palestinian, very early Christian. And so he uses language. When, when you hear Jesus talking, he says, uh, or John the Baptist talking about the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Jesus preached the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, the word heaven there is a circumlocution for the word God. So why would they not just say kingdom of God? Because they were avoiding using the divine name because of the commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So they, would, they tended to avoid saying the divine name. And so as a result, the only word they would say was God instead of saying Yahweh. Well, then God becomes then almost like God's name. So they start avoiding saying the word God, and they start just talking about the things of God and or the place where God is. This is in Maccabees. If you look in First and Second Maccabees, there's a great example of this where Judas Maccabees, you never hear him praying to God. He prays to heaven, it says, and heaven will answer. Well, the word heaven there is, is, is just simply standing in place of the word God there. Uh, so so that's what's going on here. And so what we need to do is understand that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that God established on earth, the kingdom of Israel. He was the king of Israel. Israel was his kingdom, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians, and Jesus has come to restore that kingdom. But when it's restored, it's going to look different than how it was from before, but it's still going to be governed by gravity, right? And that's important for what we're going to see in the epistle and also in many of the things we're going to look at in our lectionary meditations of how important is to understand the real physical resurrection of the body, something the Pharisees understood, but the Sadducees did not. It's, it's also important when we're discussing this question of giving to the poor, because so often I think we, we tend to spiritualize our spiritual life to the extent that I go about my, say, normal life, if we could call it that, um, dislocated or divorced from my prayer life. And here Jesus really challenges us. And he says, you can't, there's, there, there, if you want to be perfect, if you want your spiritual life to be healthy, if you want to be transformed and transfigured into what you're meant to be, a child of God, then it does require that physical realization that there's another in need. And the other in need is to be served by you and that serving by you takes on real physical form it's the guy laying in the gutter uh out here 
Um, it's the person who is spiritually starved for the relationship with God, um, who you're called to minister to. It takes, it, it takes a real transformation of our life and how I speak with somebody, how I act towards somebody. Um, it's very much a physical thing. And we want to, you know, I don't know, I got my wallet here somewhere underneath my cassock. But we want to hide this and, and separate it from this, this discussion, right? And the only time that this enters into the discussion is maybe when I'm caught on Sunday morning and I'm just too embarrassed because the guy pulled out a dollar next to me. So I got to open up my wallet and put out a buck. Otherwise, I'm going to be kind of embarrassed. Look, it's not a matter of focusing solely upon money, but it's, it's to say that this is an important part of my life. In fact, today in modern American society is a big part of my life. Okay. Because uh, I don't have the, you know, I'm not trading my lamb and my goat and stuff like that. It's a big part of my life. What am I going to do with my life in relationship to the person in need? And it's not, like, like I said, it's not just money. It's, it's all aspects of those in need around me. Am I going to be transformed into God's life who has given himself for our sake? That I might live a life of self-giving love to those around me also. Let's look finally in this, in this, uh, in this gospel account, which will kind of bring what I was saying there, what you were saying to a head, this, this question of the eye of the needle. There's been... Um, <laughs> There's been uh, quite a bit of ink spilt over this, <laughs> over this question about what the eye, eye of the needle was. And it, it, even among the fathers, there were different interpretations of, of this text. Um, but again, going back to the literal historical original context of what it meant, uh, it was something understandable, certainly to the disciples and the Jews of Jesus's day. You and I have actually seen the eye of the needle. So um, our wonderful co-worker in the vineyard, Jen Rago, is going to pull up for us here on the screen. You can see it now, this picture of one of the gates of Jerusalem. The one you're looking at is actually traditionally called the, the gate of final appeal because this is the gate Jesus walked through, the place Jesus walked through as he exited the city. And it was the last time anyone could speak on his behalf. Once he exited the city, then the, his fate was sealed and as he was going to the cross. And as he walked past this gate, nobody said a word. But here, underneath this monastery, which is built over the site, just really outside of the anastasis, outside of the place, the Church of the Resurrection, which contains the place of the crucifixion within it, the church, just outside of it is this gate that's been now dug out. Uh, the, the archaeologists have dug this and exposed this, the foundation stone, and the, the original wall that you can see here, and there's a hole in it, almost like say a keyhole where you can climb through the idea and father sebastian you know this better than i but I, I i think the idea was that it protected the city when the gates were closed at night from you know the marauding bands of whatever they couldn't bring you know the the weapons through and the soldiers through and in the quantities it would require to, to to conquer a city um but yet it would allow the, the say the poor man, the guy who arrived at the city late to really take off, to leave behind him anything. So he couldn't come in and destroy or attack the city, but he could get through this thing with nothing on his back, right? Is it, it's kind of like a, a military protection, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, you could imagine, you know, if that gate was open, you know, you could, hundreds of soldiers on horses or camels could just come flying through there in a second. So they would close all the gates in the evening 
just like we do, we lock our doors at night before we go to bed because we're going to be asleep. So no one's going to be watching. So we lock the doors, you know, so you might, if you're in a bad area, you might set the alarms or whatever. Uh, so they would lock all the gates of the cities. And then the only way to get in the city after sunset, after the gates were locked, was through, you had to have some way for someone to get in. So they had these little side gates, these little side uh, doors that the only way you could get through there was to basically crawl through the thing. And uh, no one is going to attack a city that way. One soldier after another crawling through there is just going to be, you know, mowed down by a guard. And so, uh, but this is a way for somebody who wants to come into the city at night, uh, who maybe came too late, he could get off his horse or his camel, tie it up or his donkey, tie it up to a tree in the, out there outside the gate, and he could go through the, the hole and then pull his bag through and then go find some lodging for the night. And then the morning he could go out and get his donkey. But there's just, this was a way for someone to get in and out of the city. Uh, but it also is so small that it's not a danger uh, for the people as they're sleeping. You know, you're talking about the kingdom of heaven and the importance of the, a, a physical understanding, material understanding of the reality in our life. Of course, the kingdom of heaven established by Christ is the church. And, and, and now Jesus gives us this image of the city, uh, another image of the church. And the question for us is, are we willing to enter like this young man? Are we, do, we, are we, do we prefer to stay outside where, where we can be robbed, if you will, by the passerby? And I'm speaking, of, again, of the spiritual life. Are we willing to stay out here and risk our salvation, risk our safety, risk our health? Uh, for the sake of the things we have, and we're attached to the fathers of the church. I was reading just before we got on today, I was reading some of the quotations from the fathers in this passage, and they're saying, you know, the love of money, the love of money has a tendency to infect the entire spiritual life of the person. So though though one may may be growing in the virtuous life in many aspects, nevertheless, if you're also growing in your love of money, uh, it'll tend to wipe out what you're doing the rest of your life. And why is that? Because, because it's this tendency to be looking inward for my own, for my own satisfaction, my own fulfillment, my own uh, you know, material well-being versus, as God does, always a life of love, of giving of ourselves to the ones around us, uh, which is the foundation of all virtues. So we have this beautiful image now, and also in the, in the light of the Feast of the Transfiguration of this gateway. And are we, are we willing to enter through that narrow gateway by leaving behind some of the things we've been attached to in our life so that we might find safety and health within the city? And then the question is, can we even do that on our own? And Jesus leads us with this last question. Uh, or, or challenge, and, and I, I put that to you, Father, uh, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You know, I'm, I'm, I have to break in here because this is, this is such an incredible uh, conjunction between what, we, what happened there when we were in the pilgrimage uh, and, and the text here. This, this, this is impossible for men, but all things are possible for God. This reminds us of an earlier text that is intimately related to the picture we were just looking at. In chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the, and you know, what is sin? Sin is the things that you know, draw us away from God, right? The things in this world that we've turned into idols, you know? And, and the, those stand, the Jews standing there said, 
but who can forgive sins but God alone, right? This is, this is, this is impossible for men to do. And then Jesus reveals who he is. And he raises the man from his paralysis as a sign that his sins had actually been forgiven. And then the people glorify God who has given such authority to men. And that text is so important. We see St. John Christendom commenting on that and understanding that as, uh, as a, a little window into the beautiful absolute mission the church is going to have of forgiveness of sin. And I'll never forget what a move, how moving that was on the pilgrimage. I think it was our last time we were there, maybe the time before, when Father, I think it was Father Daniel, was hearing confessions through the eye of the needle. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. There were a few people that wanted to go to confession, so he was standing at the eye of the needle, and, they were, and, and this was an opportunity for them to divest themselves of these worldly cares and then go through that eye. It was, that was just a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we're going to do it again next summer, huh? I think we're, I think we're planning on it. Certainly, you know, I, um, and let's, let's, we're going to move to the epistle now, but having all of this in the background and the feast of the Dormition fasting and almsgiving, increasing our prayer. And then really it's an invitation. Like it was to this young man, Jesus didn't force it. He didn't say you're obliged to do this. He says, look, if you want to live forever, if you want to have my life, you have to be willing to open yourself up to that life. As we're going to see here in the epistle in 1 Corinthians, um, that's a process which takes time. So why the church doesn't say just fast for one day or one hour or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a period of time, two weeks, which is really a microcosm of our entire life through which we pass through this eye of the needle, if you will. As we're going to see with St. Paul, it didn't just happen in one day. It's something that it is. It, it, it takes time, and, and so you may say to me, you may say, "Well, Father has guys. I'm standing there like this, like this rich man, uh, this, this poor, this this young man, and you know, I don't know. I'm not willing to just set aside all of these attachments I have." I say, "Okay, but are you willing to let God's life begin to work within you? Do you desire to have His life be your life, and let Him transform you? Um, and if you're willing to open up that possibility and that door," in your heart then the physician will begin to work and a physician always works carefully works slowly saint john christen loved to use this uh this image of the of the divine physician and how if he goes in he starts hacking pieces of the body off the guy's gonna die but no a good physician works slowly uh and are we willing to allow the physician to work on our on our hearts to begin that transformation now within us uh, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 because it really is the incarnation of this whole business that we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking at verse 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. St. Paul says, Brethren, I remind you of the good news I preached to you and which you received and in which you stand through which also you are being saved, if you hold fast to it, as I preached it to you. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, what I had also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, and after that to the twelve. Then he was seen by more than 500 brethren at one time, many of whom are still with us, while some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, as one born 
out of due time, he was seen also by me. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted God's church. But by God's grace I am what I am, and his grace in me has not been fruitless. In fact, I have labored more than any of them. Yet not I, but God's grace with me. Whether it be I or they who speak, this is what we preach, and this you have believed. Again, Father, give us the context of this text in 1 Corinthians. So the letters to the Corinthians were written by Paul on his third journey. He founded this church on his second journey. And if we kind of think of the, you know, the Pauline missions, and uh, Paul left Antioch and he traveled in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and founded churches there. That was his first journey. On his second journey, he traveled throughout that region again, but he eventually went over into Greece. And it's that time that he founded the church in Corinth. On his third journey, before he got there, and we talked about this a little bit last week, before he got there, the Corinthian church had begun to rebel against his authority under the direction of some false apostles who had arrived and were teaching them things that were very different than Paul had taught. And so Paul had to write first and then second Thess uh, Corinthians to correct them and prepare <clears throat> them for his arrival. He was eventually going to be coming from Ephesus, so through Macedonia, and eventually to Corinth, and he eventually did arrive there. So these letters are, there's in the letters, as you read them, there's a number of things that hint at, at those issues and that history that we just talked about. And one of them is this problem about their questioning what he had preached to them. He preached to them something. He says at the beginning, he says, I remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached, preached to you the gospel. That was on his second journey when he founded them, which you received back then, in which you stand presently, by which you are being saved. In the, in the Greek here, it's, in the, it's a present tense continuous aspect. So in which you are in the process of salvation, if you could translate the Greek here properly. If you hold it fast, Unless you believed in vain, right? So he says, look, there's something I delivered to you and you received it and you're standing in it and you're in the process of salvation. You're moving in the right direction, but this will only continue if you remain in what you received originally. And he says that at the very end again, he talks about, about them holding to this gospel, this good news that he had preached to them. And Father, what, Father I'm, gonna, I'm just going to jump right in there for a second for the sake of our participants. Well, first of all, it sounds like a text Luther would have been very uncomfortable with, okay, because, because you know, uh, this idea of, you know, once saved, always saved, um, that's not what St. Paul is preaching here. Is there, there's a process going on, but be, I'm going to just go back before that text. It says, brethren, I remind you of the good news. I know we have some friends down, some uh, Bible study friends down there in San Diego. I know other people are using it this way, so I'm just going to stop right now for a second. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to pause this video. I'm going to ask you to write down the answer to the question and then play the video, okay? So to our Bible study group down there in San Diego and others, you're going to want to pause it after this question, have a, have a discussion, write this down, okay? Brethren, I, I remind you of the good news I preached to you. Now, now, here's the question for you. What is the good news St. Paul preached? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Question mark. Hit pause. Now, having paused, 
And I hope you had a good, clear one-sentence answer because St. Paul absolutely answers it as a one-sentence answer in this. Father Sebastian, talk to us about the good news of Jesus Christ as St. Paul understood it. In, in the time we have left? One sentence. <laughs> Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and those in the tombs, bestowing life. That is the good news. Jesus is risen. And if he is risen from the dead, then we can be too. Uh, we who are in the tombs can be raised from the dead at the end of time by having been baptized into him, having that is recreated, a new creation in him, having been refashioned by the hands of God in the baptismal font from the, the waters of the baptismal font, like the old creation. We have the spirit of God breathed into our nostrils again. And then we are welcomed to the tree of life of which Jesus says, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has life in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus' resurrection is a, is a foreshadowing of what will come for all those who are baptized into him and have been chrismated with the Holy Spirit, anointed and become Christ like him and have become one with him. And if we are one with him, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, if we, are, if we have been baptized into him, we've died with him, we've been buried, we've been raised with him, the newness of life in our baptism, then we can expect a real physical resurrection like he had at the end of time, at which time we will then enter back into the Garden of Eden and live with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. And that's the good news. Which is the point of what Jesus was one sentence, though. I What was that? It's a little more than one sentence, though. Yeah, that was a little bit, you know, that's okay. We understand, okay? You're a teacher, so... <laughs> uh, this Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven earlier, and uh, and here it is again, uh, brothers and sisters. If you wrote down something which was contrary to what Father Sebastian just said, or didn't really nail the the nail on the head, if you will, to what he said, if you didn't mention baptism, if you didn't mention resurrection, um. If you don't understand all of that business in terms of bodily resurrection, then we've got a fundamental problem with our concept of salvation. If we have a problem with the concept of salvation. We have a problem with the concept of the Savior. And this is very dangerous. So I would encourage you to stop this video again. Compare what he just said. Maybe you want to go back and listen to it again. Compare what you wrote down and you discussed. This is so fundamentally important. If you get this right, you're on the right track, but if you get this wrong, <laughs> we got a major problem on our hands. So, Father Sebastian, going back to the context, why is this? Look, St. Paul's not preaching against Luther, okay? He's talking to the Corinthians, and why is there a problem? Why is he concerned about them doing exactly as he said there, holding fast um, to what he had preached? Why is there a problem with them seeming to maybe wander from the good news well okay so it really all comes down to this god created the world physical and material and immaterial he created everything and it was all good we know that from genesis chapter one that's the judeo-christian message the good god created all of this stuff and it's all good now it all becomes corrupted but what do you do with something that's being corrupted you fix it right if you make a beautiful chair you're a carpenter and then somebody comes along and sits in it and cracks one of the legs or something well 
a good carpenter who loves this thing he created doesn't pick up the chair and throw it in the trash and make a new one. He takes that chair and he repairs that spot and makes it stronger than it was before. So that's the story. That's salvation history in a nutshell. From the time of Adam to the to the coming of Jesus to the to the resurrection. That's that's really what it's all about. But Satan, who is in control of the pagan world, polytheism, and all of that has another message. And that message, you can see it, it, it's organized from behind the scenes, clearly by, by Satan, because all the pagan religions all basically come down to this. And during the time the Corinthian church in this period, the first century, most of the people in Corinth would have had some sort of a worldview from their pagan background, which was dualistic. And it, and all dualistic religions have some sort of a scenario like this of creation. And again, the, the people in Corinth would have had some story like this in their minds from their pagan background. That the world, the cosmos, all comes from two sources. There was a good God or many good gods. And they had spirit babies. And those spirit babies were floating around in the spirit world. But then there were some bad gods who didn't like this, the, the good gods. And so they decided to kidnap the spirit babies and imprison them. And so what they did is they created these little bodies to capture the spirits and weigh them down onto the earth, which these bad gods had created as a massive Alcatraz. And so the ancient pagans understood our life here on earth as a period of imprisonment and our bodies as our own particular little prison cell. So for them, salvation was death. When you die, when your body died, your spirit would come out of your prison cell and hopefully escape from Alcatraz, hopefully float off back into the clouds, back to the spirit, the spirit parents. If you know Mormons, you've probably heard something like this as well. But that's the pagan idea. That's, that there's, this, there's two worlds. There's the good and the evil. There's the light and the darkness. There's the, um, there's the material and the immaterial. One is good, one is bad, and they're always at odds with each other. But that's not salvation history. That's not what we know of, of, of how things were created. For them, resurrection of the body, for the Corinthians then, was something very bad. If, you, if salvation was to be released from your body and float back up your earth, then to be recreated, to have your body back again and be here on earth? No, 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 no. Jesus had a body when he rose from that? No, 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 no. So they had trouble with the resurrection of Jesus and therefore also our own bodily resurrection of time. So Paul has to really hammer on this, that there were witnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you are still dead in your sins, he says later on in this epistle. Which makes a lot of sense of why he goes and lists this, this uh, kind of like a, a travel log of Jesus after the, uh, the resurrection. He says he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter, right? Okay, he appears to Peter. He appears to the 12, right? That's in the upper room. He was seen by more than 500 brethren. Most likely that's in Galilee up on the Mount of Beatitudes as he, he said he goes there. Remember the apostles go there and they go out fishing in the lake again. Right. Um, uh, so then, and then, um, and then, uh, and, and he makes this point and some of them are still alive. So if you want to deny that he was seen in the body, 
you're going to have to deal with the fact that that is not just we're not just claiming somebody's peeled gum before they're still around they've seen it okay and then uh and then by james right jesus goes back you know the ancient tradition is he goes from galilee jesus then goes back to jerusalem appears to james who is going to become the bishop of jerusalem um and then finally to the apostles at the ascension so here's the whole if you want to know like what did jesus do after the resurrection there's the there's the list and then finally he says finally he says he was seen by me who, who am the the least of the apostles so father sebastian we're, we're drawing to a close here but maybe we can we can uh, just spend just a minute here first of all how is it that saint paul even thinks he's an apostle because he wasn't one of the 12 um and why does he call himself least of the apostles so apostle is from the Greek apostolos, meaning uh, one who is sent, he who is sent. So Jesus has many disciples, but some of them are sent out. And so they're called apostles. So we you see this even in the gospels, Jesus begins to send them out. And so uh, this is a special rank among Jesus's disciples, ones who actually go out and spread the word there. And so uh, we know of the original 12, and we know that Judas, you know, uh, lost that, that position. And then they replace him with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And then, so Paul's looking back and saying, you know, I'm not one of the original 12, but I am an apostle. I'm the least of them. Why is that? Because I persecuted the church, right? We know the story of Paul, how he was, he was actually opposed to the gospel. He was living a life which was not only contrary to the gospel, he was actively trying to stop it. So, uh, it's not that he was some, you know, just a sinner or a wicked guy wandering around, a tax collector. Paul's, Paul's life was directed at, at that early stage, at actually trying to stop the message from getting out. And so Paul looks back on that. You can see with sorrow many times as he recalls what he did and the death of Stephen and all that. But then he says, you know, that's what I did, and I was wrong, and I was a sinner, but God saved me. And he turned my life around. And sent me out to go be an apostle. And so, like it or not, even though I'm unworthy for this calling, this is what God has, has called me to. You know, I think um, the, I, I said as we're getting in this epistle that we get almost an incarnation of the gospel here. We could almost say that the young man who Jesus uh, spoke with in the gospel is a, uh, is a, is a type of saint paul as he is a type of each one of us um and then the question jesus asks of him is a question that jesus asks of paul and asks of each one of us uh, the question is are we willing to open up our life to his way of life are we willing to be transfigured you know too often we celebrate the feast of the church at a distance you know, Jesus is up there on the mountain, starts shining like a light bulb. That's nice, okay? The apostles take a nap, <laughs> you know, on Mount Tabor. Nice for them. They're up there on the mountain. And I'm down here just looking and watching it happen. Well, this isn't Christianity. This is you talked about earlier about the importance of understanding our baptism within the context of the proclamation of the good news. Jesus didn't rise from the dead for himself. He's God. It's no wonder he rose from the dead. Okay, death cannot contain him. It's no wonder that he was transfigured on Mount Tabor. He's God. The great mystery of what Jesus did is what he did with our human nature, and therefore what he invites us to have happen in our life. But again, if we are willing, 
He's not a dictator. He's not going to force himself upon us. He is God who is love, as John says, and love is always lived in freedom. And so we're given this choice now, I think so appropriately during this time of this post-transfiguration time and post-dormition time, to have a question asked for ourselves, are we willing, like the mother of God, to, in a sense, divest ourselves of all the things that the world says are important um, and, and bring our whole life to the feet of Christ, as St. Peter did, as St. Paul did, this doesn't mean, and you've talked about this before, and it's a wonderful insight about the calling of the apostles. It doesn't mean that, hey, you can't have a house anymore. You can't have a car anymore. You can't have anything anymore. You've got to go be Mother Teresa and go walk in the streets of Calcutta, India. <clears throat> no. St. Peter opened his house to Christ. Um, he didn't discard his wife or discard his mother-in-law. He brought them to Christ. He didn't get rid of his boat and go shove it off in the Sea of Galilee and let it float out there and somebody else. Pick it. No, he brought the boat to Christ. Are we willing to bring our life to Christ? Are we willing to allow his life to become our life? Which is why St. Paul really concludes this text about God's uh, grace. It's one of those, I love these terms, or maybe I hate them, I don't know. There's these words in the Bible that become just so ordinary for us. So God's grace. That's nice. You know what? This is, we're going to stop again. We'll do what we did earlier. For our San Diego Bible study, hit pause after my question. What is God's grace? Question mark, hit pause. Okay, now you're coming back. You've hit pause. You've discussed this. You've written it down, I hope. You should be able to answer this question in one sentence or better yet, one, two, or three words. Because the word grace simply means gift. It's God's gift. That's what grace is, God's gift. And what is God's gift? What is the good news? It's that he's given us the most important thing that anyone can give, huh? his life. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. You give your life, there's nothing left to give. God has given us his life. He's poured his life into us, which means that now it's possible for us. If we have God's life within us, it's possible to have eternal life. It brings us full circle back to that question of the young man. What must I do to attain eternal life? And the first, the first answer to that question is, am I, am I willing to allow his life to become my life? And, and during this time of the fast of the dormition, all the more important, as we set aside of the things that become so common, we become attached to, whether it be food or whatever it might become, in this time, this effort to say, wait a minute, I'm going to reprioritize my life to what is truly good in my life, what is truly important, that it might become in me the driving force. And notice St. Paul just doesn't say, well, I've got God's grace now. Good for me. No, he says, look what it's doing. His grace in me has not been fruitless. Anyways, it's bearing fruit. It's so important. We're talking about God's life within us. That is not something I come and get on Sunday. Well, I showed up on Sunday. I received the Eucharist. I got God's light. I took it. Now, no. I received the gift, and then it begins to bear fruit within me. And when it bears fruit within me, then it flows out of me as it flows out of God himself, who has lived this life of self-giving love from all eternity. I challenge you, my brothers and sisters, 
um, with, with a few questions. Have you been transfigured by Christ? Um, do you believe that you can be transfigured by Christ? Look at the image, the icon of St. Paul. Is no one too far away that God cannot work upon him? Do you want to be transfigured by Christ? Do you want to be transfigured into the image and likeness of God as our first parents were before the fall? Let's conclude with the Traparian of the Transfiguration. You were transfigured on the mountain, O Christ God, and you showed your disciples as much of your glory as they could hold. Let your eternal light shine also upon us sinners through the prayers of the Mother of God, O giver of light. Glory to you. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.